The subject we're going to address this evening really can be avoided and answered by determining that uh, you're going to be satisfied with Jesus and find him as the quartet saying, find him as your all in all. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 10, and then we'll uh, move over to the first few verses of chapter number 3 for our uh, text. I'm going to preach on the entire book of 1 Corinthians tonight. That's a joke, right? <laughs> Ryan said, an overview, an overview. There's a particular uh, topic I want us to address or a focus. I was hoping to get a little more laughter out of that, but apparently it didn't work. Um, lame excuse. That was a dad joke, right? First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that's how we know Paul was a southerner, because he said, y'all. Okay, verse number 10 there. And not only that you speak the same thing, but that there be no divisions among you. The word divisions there is the idea of a tear or a rip. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, and I mentioned this just in passing this morning, declared unto me of you, my brethren... By them which are of the house of Chloe. I've often wondered what it was like when Paul was first reading this. Or when the, the, whoever was reading this at the church at Corinth, they're gathering this letter from Paul. Can you imagine the house of Chloe sitting over here where the dukes are sitting? And Paul just came right in the front door with this. The house of Chloe told me that you all aren't getting along. And all these eyes go. And the house of Chloe goes. I don't know how they would have responded. But uh, anyway. I know how I might have responded. But the house of Chloe has declared or reported that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul. And notice what he says, every one of you saith. He's inclu- this had infected the whole church. Okay, Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ, and It's my understanding there that uh, those who are saying I'm of Christ were not sincerely saying that, but it was something of a statement of, well, we're just of Christ. Okay, there was pride in that one. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Let me just mention this. When we have the baptismal service on two Sundays and baptize at this point seven new believers or candidates for baptism... I think it's important to understand that uh, we're baptizing these believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Their identity is with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not with a preacher that baptized them. It's, in a sense, not even with a local church. It's with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. <clears throat> now, if you would, that being said, as Paul addresses this issue of dividing up over personalities, notice, if you would, chapter number 3 and verse number 1. And I, brethren, and by the way, chapters 1, 2, and 3 form a section if you would, or a main point in the outline, if you're outlining 1 Corinthians. Verse number 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. The Greek word means fleshly. Our English word carnal, uh, from which we get our word carne for meat. And the idea of the English word carnal in this context is that when that believer acting the way they're acting and their attitude as what it is, when someone interacts with them, they taste the world. They don't taste the spirit. Okay. 
This person, in their interactions and attitude, they taste more like the world, if you're using that metaphor. I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto, what? Babes in Christ. So these carnal people that he's addressing, these are believers. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for you are yet carnal. Now, my heart's been challenged to give them the benefit of the doubt. Remember, they've only been saved for three years, and look at what they got saved out of. Remember that from this morning. For you're yet carnal. Why? For Verse number three. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not yet carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, and then here he gives evidence again of their carnality. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth, what are the next two words? Anything. Neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Let's pray. Father, help us as we look at this in one sense, what I know will be a sobering message, but in another sense, what has the potential to be a, a profoundly helpful message, not just for right where Crossroads Baptist Church is at the moment, but the coming months and even years. And Lord, not only corporately, but then individually for each of our lives. And so God, I pray for your help tonight. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I ask this, and I pray that he would have liberty to move in the midst of this room tonight among believers as Revelation 2 and 3 pictures him as doing, and I ask this in his name, amen. I want to preach a message tonight entitled, Avoiding Carnality, Avoiding Carnality. Now, do I believe that Crossroads Baptist Church is in the condition that Corinth was in? No. Let me just get that out of the way. I don't want anybody to sit there and think he's preaching a message on carnality because he thinks we're carnal. That's not what I'm saying. I want, though, to stress the importance of a church and individual believers avoiding tasting like the world. Okay. Um, first of all, let me say this. There are some Bible expositors and theologians that believe there are really only two classes of people, uh, the unsaved and the saved, and and they eliminate the thought of a third category. I believe there are two categories, the unsaved and the saved, but then among the saved there are two categories, and that is a spiritual believer and a carnal believer. Okay? I believe the Bible teaches that, and there are several reasons. First of all, I know my own heart. I'm, just, I'm, I'm telling you straight up. If there's a believer here tonight who says, I've never been carnal, I'd like to talk to you after the service. Um, but Paul clearly addresses people who are believers and categorizes them as carnal. Okay. And that is, there, there are other reasons we could talk about tonight, but I want you to understand right here at the outset the reality of the condition of carnality, both for a church as a whole. Paul is addressing a church. He said, every one of you. And then for an individual believer, and as I've already mentioned, the idea of carnality is a fleshly believer, a believer who is more governed by and marked by the things of this temporal fallen world. It's a believer that tastes like a lost man in his actions and attitudes, okay? 
And Paul makes it clear in the book of Corinth, especially based on the things that he heard and then the things that they inquired of him, that there was carnality in this church. And he addresses many of the evidences or marks of carnality. My point tonight is this. Crossroads Baptist Church determined to avoid carnality. And one of the ways that we do that is by identifying the marks of car- What does a carnal person look like? What do they act like? And then we want to avoid that. Avoiding carnality is one of the most important efforts a believer and a church can engage in. And I, and I want to get that right across right here at the beginning. Okay? So what are some marks? I'm going to look at, at seven marks. We're going to move fairly quickly. We're going to move, and, and this will help you. If, you. if you take notes, this will help give you a good outline of the book of, of uh, 1 Corinthians 2, okay, for better understanding for the future. One, the first mark, okay, and let, me, let me mention this, okay. Uh, when George Washington turned in his ledger book at the end of the War for Independence, it was discovered that the thing, is, as Congress would allot him finances for him to fight the war for independence, the thing that he spent the most money on was intelligence, knowing the enemy. I don't think that thunder has anything to do with what I just said, okay? <laughs> right. Knowing the enemy. Now, we have a threefold enemy, the world... And the devil, but let me tell you, your worst enemy in so many ways, can I, as I say it of myself, is the face I shave in the mirror every morning. Now, for you guys that got beards, I don't know what category that puts you in, okay? Your flesh is your worst enemy, okay? And we have to keep that in mind. And so we identify and we want to avoid carnality. And so the first evidence or mark of carnality, if you're diagnosing, If you want to avoid, is number one, division over personalities. When a church or a person starts dividing up over personalities, it's a mark of carnality. I just read two passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and really that's one of the main focuses of the Apostle Paul in those first three chapters is the evidence or the mark of carnality in the fact that they were divided over personalities. And as you all pray about a new pastor, let me encourage you to look for God's man, not based on certain dynamics, not based on personality, but based on the leading of God's spirit, Okay, God's man. But be careful about division over personalities, favorite preachers, uh, favorite conferences, whatever it may be. This struck me as I was thinking again about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 12. It's one of the three classic passages in the New Testament on the judgment seat of Christ. Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But one of the things I notice about 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 as it relates to the judgment seat of Christ is it's not so much focused, though there's application here, it's not so much focused on the individual believers stand at the judgment seat of Christ, but because of the context of teachers and the building of the local church, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the focus is more on the teacher who will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how he, through his teaching ministry, has contributed to the building of that local church upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Notice verse number 12. Now if, what are the next two words? 
any man. I love this because remember the context. The context is the church at Corinth saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And Paul in verse number 12 says, if any man, I like that. And I think in this context, the word is generic enough that we could say, if any man or woman, and this is powerful, get this, it means that there's a day coming that that, that Sunday school teacher of the two and three-year-old or four and five-year-old primary class or the first to third grade or the fourth to sixth grade that week in and week out labors faithfully to put a, another precious stone in the building of the life of those young people, even though you wonder sometimes how much you're getting across. But you do so faithfully, there is a day coming when that will be acknowledged at the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus is going to point that out. That you, as you faithfully taught that class of primary, that class of, of uh, adolescents, that class of teenagers, whatever it was, as you faithfully did so, if any man, and nobody may ever know your name outside the walls of this church, but there's a day coming when Jesus is going to call your name at the judgment seat. I don't know about you, but that encourages me. That encourages me. And and when we get to dividing over personalities, it's an evidence of carnality. Understand, God will use every faithful servant. And they have a powerful contribution, if any man. And it's not the only time that Paul uses that statement. Verse number 12, now if any man build upon this foundation. Verse number 13, every man's work should be made manifest. Verse number uh, 13, the middle of the verse, it should be revealed by fire and the fire shall try Every man's work of what sort it is. Verse number 14, if any man's work, remember the context is teaching in the local church, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. None of you has ever heard the name Gary Thompson. Gary Thompson was a faithful blue-collar layman at the Victory Baptist Church in Moline, Illinois, but he was Jenny Shreve's Dietrich's youth leader when she was a teenage girl. And I'm telling you what, when you would hear Jenny testify, she could never say enough good about Gary Thompson. He didn't have a dynamic personality. They didn't do a lot of trips to Carowinds. Do you know what their youth activities were? He'd put them all in his minivan, and they'd go down to the local rescue mission, and they'd put on a service at the rescue mission and see those derelicts ministered to for Christ. And she cut her teeth as a young believer under the influence of Gary Thompson. I only met Gary Thompson once in my life. He died of cancer as well. But I'll tell you something, I will go to my grave and at the judgment seat of Christ when we get to heaven, I can't wait to wrap my arms around Gary Thompson's neck because of how he shaped Jenny Dietrich. We get divided over personalities and we think only the big names can do it. We're being carnal. Number two... A second evidence of carnality is the deceitfulness of pride. This really is a no-brainer. And this really takes in chapters 4 to 11. And you can see uh, several times Paul uses the term puffed up. Notice uh, chapter number 4 and verse number 6. And these things... uh, Go back to verse number 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. In other words, if you want to know how to view a minister of Christ, look at me and Apollos... Use us as an example and stewards of the mysteries of God, under rowers, the guys on the bottom of the ship that just keep the thing moving even though nobody ever sees them. Okay. 
We're stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required in stewards that a man be found what? Not named, but faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time. This is another great verse on the judgment seat of Christ. Until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. Let us be an example that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be, what are the next two words? Puffed up. For one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Or what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? And then Paul uses some sarcasm here. Now you're full. Now you're rich. Now you're reigned. You have reigned with kings without us. And I would to God that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. And then he goes on to describe how they had become this, this pariah in society, if you would. The offscouring. Yet the thing that mattered is the judgment of God. But Paul uses this term, puffed up. And he would use it again several more times. He'll use it again down in chapter number 5. But, but here's another mark of carnality is the deceitfulness of pride. How many of you have noticed, not only in your own life but in other people's lives, that pride is that disease that everybody else typically notices before the person that has it? And yet I think, listen, if we're before the Lord like we should be, He will be regularly revealing to us the innate pride of our fallen self. Why else does the Bible keep commanding us, humble yourselves, humble yourselves, humble yourselves? But Paul several times uses this term puffed up, and he's referencing the deceitfulness of pride. When you think of something that is puffed up, it's... Looking, thinking, feeling, actor, acting bigger than you really are, than is reality. And Paul gives warnings in chapter 4. We just read these verses about the deceitfulness of pride as it relates to how we think of ourselves and think of others. We are not to think of ourselves above that which is true. There's another manifestation of the deceitfulness of pride or being puffed up. Notice, if you would, chapter number 5, verse number 1. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Not even the lost people think this is okay. And ye are, what are the words? Puffed up. You're proud about it. And if not, rather mourn that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. He'll go on a little later in the chapter to warn about how leaven leavens the whole lump, affects the whole lump. But there's not only the deceitfulness of pride, that's an evidence of carnality and how we think of ourselves, but also how we tolerate sin sometimes. Here, these believers were essentially puffed up and thinking, look at how loving we are. Look at how broad-minded we are. And Paul said that's pride. Toleration of sin. Sin kills. Sin kills. Sin kills. And it's pride that finds a way to justify it or excuse it. 
We move into chapter number 6. And the deceitfulness of pride as an evidence of carnality is manifested by trouble between saints. And I'm going to have to move briefly. But notice if you would verse number 7 and 8. Chapter number 6 verses 7 and 8. Now therefore there is utterly fault among you because you go to law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? The deceitfulness of pride in the church at Corinth that was an evidence of its carnality was being manifested in the fact that there was trouble between the saints. And rather than letting the least of the brethren in the local church who were far more spiritually equipped to answer in any issue uh, on a question, these believers were suing each other and going to court. And so trouble between the saints was an evidence of pride. And Paul asked him the question, why don't you just suffer yourself to be defrauded? It's better to be wronged. It's better to allow yourself to be wronged than to blot the testimony of Christ by two believers having it out in a public setting. And so the evidence of carnality as it relates to trouble between saints. Chapter number 7 Uh, The deceitfulness of pride is an evidence of carnality as it relates to tenderness towards the spouse. Chapter 7, the whole chapter pretty much is about the issue of divorce and remarriage. And apparently Paul was addressing the issue that some of the believers were wanting to divorce their spouse. And Paul took a very narrow and I believe biblical stand on the issue of divorce and remarriage. May I tell you that one of the greatest marks of health in a local church are husbands and wives that make up the core of a home and they love each other. Amen. Okay. And they live for each other. And I love what a guy said a couple years ago. I heard this. He said, marriage is the union of two forgivers. Two forgivers. And uh, let me just, okay, this is a little side note. If you want to put this in the category of preference, go right ahead. But I think even Christian romance novels should be avoided. Because in so many cases, it creates a faulty expectation of marriage. Okay. Now, you can go home tonight and you can say, I don't agree with pastor. That's fine. A little personal preference there, maybe. Anyway, let me just tell you, do you know most, most, if not all marriage problems would be solved if the spouses would just be a good Christian toward each other? If you just be a good Christian, if I just be a good Christian toward each other, spirit-filled believer, move to chapter 8, 9, and 10, and again, we're looking at this second evidence of carnality The deceitfulness of pride, I'll briefly review these as it relates to how a person thinks of themselves and others, Uh, the toleration of sin, trouble between saints, chapter 6, tenderness towards spouses, chapter 7, chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, tripping up weak brothers with stumbling blocks. There there are a lot of problems that would be avoided if, if we as believers would not be, allow pride to get a hold, and we we just said this, well, I don't, I don't care what how it affects anybody. My liber- it's my liberty. Okay, I get liberty. And there's a whole perspective on that. I get liberty. 
But when your liberty or your meat, as Paul uses the metaphor, when your meat causes a brother to offend, you have sinned against the conscience for which Christ died. Okay. Now, I'm not talking about Judaizers. I'm not talking about people who are trying to control everybody else by their preferential scruples. Okay, their legalistic standards. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a weaker brother who's growing, who's learning, who has a a heart of desire, and there's something maybe that you could do, but because of the background and your interaction with that weaker brother, you shouldn't do it because it would offend their conscience. It would be a stumbling block that would trip them up. Paul said, if meat makes my brother to offend, I'll not eat meat for how long? As long as the world stands, I won't eat meat. And so, deceitfulness of pride when it comes to tripping a weaker brother with stumbling blocks. And chapter number 11, tension at the Lord's table was the result of pride in the church, and it was an evidence of carnality. So, evidences of carnality, the division over personalities, chapters 1 to 3, deceitfulness of pride, chapters 4 through 11. Now, I'm going to go back and look at chapters 8 to 10 as a section by itself. And here's another evidence of carnality that we want to avoid as a church, and that is this, disputes over preferences. Disputes over preferences. As you look at chapters 8, 9, and 10, notice how Paul begins. He begins with puffing up. Verse number 8, now is touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. We know that that idol is nothing in the world and it's still just meat. But knowledge does what? Puff it up, but charity edifieth, builds up. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. The idea is this, is you may think you know something, but if you don't exercise love towards a brother, you really haven't learned anything yet. Okay. We haven't learned anything. If, if we base everything on knowledge and we're not loving our brother like we should. So many times that happens with disputes over preferences, taking things that are not directly addressed in the Scripture and making a legalistic standard out of them. Again, we're not talking about the Judaizer, but we're talking about how that affects a weaker brother. What's the summary of all of this as we think about disputes over preferences? And I'm going to move quickly. Notice, if you would, the last two verses of chapter 10. Pardon me. The last three verses of chapter 10. Really... Paul is bringing his argument about this issue of preferences to a conclusion. How do you decide then? What's your your determining factor when it comes to what to do as it relates to a preference? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to what? Glory of God. Will it make someone else think bigger and better thoughts about God than they've ever thought before? As opposed to the thought, man, those people in that church, they kind of have it out over things that really don't seem to matter in eternity. As opposed to, look at how that church loves each other. Man, God must be real to them. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give none offense, neither to Jews. I've always appreciated that about our missionary, Craig Hartman. Though... He's a man of Jewish ethnicity. He's trusted Christ as his Messiah. Biblically, he has liberty to eat pork. 
Ask Peter, Acts chapter 10. Ask him. There's liberty. And Paul makes that clear. But you know what I love about Brother Hartman? He's given his life to evangelizing others of his own people who need Christ as Messiah. And when we've had him in to speak before, uh, he's mentioned, he's like, you know what? He goes, any food preferences? And sometimes I ask it just to hear him say it because it's such a powerful testimony. He said, you know what? If I can avoid eating pork because when I witness to unbelieving Jews, that's a question that comes up and I'd like to be able to say that I haven't. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Okay. Giving none offense neither to Jews nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they might be what? Saved. And so here's this wonderful summary. Paul said, as long as the world stands, if meat makes a brother to offend, I'm not going to eat it. I'm not going to sin against the conscience for which Christ died. And let me just say this. I don't know of any person that has ever been turned, a lost person who's ever been turned away from the gospel of Christ because they interacted with a believer that maybe didn't have the highest dress standards or music standards or, and we could put some more in that category, but I do know plenty of folks who've been turned away from the Christ of the gospel because of the harsh spirit of believers. And when we get to disputing over preferences, a harshness will so often enter in and it becomes a turnoff to unbelievers and it becomes a turnoff to the young in our midst too. Pastor, are you saying this because you think we've got major problems here? No, I'm saying let's avoid this, okay? Avoiding carnality. When we move, as we continue in the outline, chapters 1 to 3, division over personalities, chapters 4 to 11, the deceitfulness of pride, looking back into that section, chapter 8 to 10, evidence of carnality is dispute over preferences. But a fourth evidence of carnality that we see in chapters 12 to 14 is this, the desire for preeminence. It's an evidence of carnality in a local church. The desire for preeminence, and in particular, many of you will remember chapters 12, 13, and 14 deal with the spiritual gifts. In particular, Paul focuses on prophecy and tongues. And there was a fight going on in the church at Corinth where the carnal church members were wanting to say tongues, tongues, tongues. Why? Because in the mind of those carnal Corinthians was the more flashy, the more sensational, if you would, of the gifts. And you remember one of the things that Paul does in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is he gives a list that seems to indicate the biblical importance of an order of the gifts, a biblical order, and he puts tongues way down at the bottom. The Corinthians list was putting that flashy gift way, way, way up at the top. But what was the motivation behind the, the, the tension over this? Was that there were people in the church that wanted to be noticed. Desire for preeminence, the flashy gifts versus the more excellent way. And I will forever be grateful and always look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 as an evidence that the Spirit of God wrote the Bible. 
Because in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14, he put chapter 13. The solution to all the issues is love. 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 Of course, Paul will bring out over and over in chapter number 14 the importance of edification. Do what you do in the church for the edification of the other believers. We moved it. I'm, I'm going to have to hustle on here. Chapter 15. So chapters 12, 13, and 14, the evidence of the carnality that we want to avoid is a desire for preeminence. We come to chapter number 15, and uh, somebody just say out loud, what's the one word to summarize chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians? Resurrection. And in two stages. The first section of chapter 15 is one of the greatest apologetics in all the Bible on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then we move to the second section of the chapter, because Jesus raised, we're going to raise also. How many of you are looking forward to that? Matter of fact, if Jesus came tonight, it'd be just fine. Okay? If we went through that, that resurrection, and we got raptured tonight, and all the graves of our loved ones, fellow believers, got opened up tonight, and we were all gathered together in the air, in the presence of the Lord, so that we will ever be with the Lord, I would say, hallelujah, let's keep going. But notice what Paul says, chapter 15, verse number 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some where? Whoa! In the church at Corinth. How say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, you study commentators and, and there's discussion about what the exact nature or details of this doctrinal perversion was. But I believe there are some very logical uh, some summaries that we can make of what they may well have been saying. And that is this, is we're all... Do you remember 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 18 where Paul confronted two men, one named Hymenaeus and one named Philetus, and they were saying that the resurrection is what? Past already, okay? There's no future resurrection, and it's believed that what their position was essentially this, and I believe there may be a parallel to this passage, and that is this, that really the resurrection that we're going to experience is a spiritual, unseen resurrection. We've maybe already gone through it, and so as a result of that, since we're already there, we can just live any way we want to. You see, here's the deal about a resurrection. A resurrection implies new life afterwards. And you and I have been raised to walk in what? The newness of life. There's been a great change. Okay? And, and just, to, just to go to this briefly, and that is this, is that the, the, the importance of the doctrine of resurrection as it relates to our future hope, you cannot diminish that. The doctrine of our coming resurrection generates hope in the believer's heart that motivates me right now. And furthermore, that hope stimulates holiness. Because I'm a new creature, because I have been raised spiritually and I will be raised physically, there is not only a hope that is generated, but a holiness that is motivated. Okay. I'm a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so an evidence of carnality is, number five, doctrines that pervert. Doctrines that pervert. Again, let me just caution you as a church. Be careful about new truths. Or something that's peripheral or fringe. Okay? We have 2,000 years of conservative Bible interpretation. 2,000 years. And uh, I remember, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. If it's a new truth, and it was a telephone repairman and a farmer in the church my dad has pastored for 35 years, Kenny Thomas had said this. If it's a new truth, either it's not new or it's not truth. Watch out for doctrines that pervert. It's an evidence of carnality. Somebody says, let me tell you what God showed me. It might have been anchovies. Okay. It may have been. Paul, or Peter, pardon me, warden about no prophecy of Scripture is of any what? Private interpretation. Individual opening. And just, in other words, just one or a few people. Okay, so an evidence of carnality, doctrines that pervert, the desire for preeminence, disputes over preferences, division over personalities, the deceitfulness of pride. Chapter number 16, I want to give this in the last thought briefly. This will not take long. Look at chapter number 16, verses 1 to 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. I appreciated Paul's, have appreciated Paul's scrupulousness about finances. And when I come, whomsoever you shall approve by your letters, then will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now, to understand the point I'm going to make here, you'd also have to keep in mind 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, where Paul... The, the historical context is this, is that when Paul started asking for financial assistance for the poor saints at Jerusalem that were going through a famine, Corinth was the first to get on board. Corinth's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, we'll help with that. Okay? But, get this, because of their carnality, they got distracted from being a part of God's provision. And that's an evidence of carnality. When you get distracted, when I get distracted from being conscious of and looking for how I can be used of the Lord to meet the needs of others. And so the distraction from provision, and as you look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, remember Paul writes a letter ahead to the church at Corinth because they were the first ones above a year ago to get excited about it. But now he hears they've gotten so wrapped up in this carnality they've forgotten about it. Paul had been with the churches of Macedonia and had said, man, you should have seen and heard about the excitement of the Corinthians. And so the Macedonian, the poor churches of Macedonia said, well, we want to have part two. And they dug deep. And they were motivated by the Corinthians' initial example. But then Paul hears that the Corinthians had gone cold. And he writes a letter to them, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He said, listen, essentially, and I'm kind of reading into this a bit, but he goes, this is going to be really embarrassing. If I show up with this delegation from Macedonia, these poorer churches who've dug deep, 
And I get there, and the very reason they got excited about giving is because I told them Corinth was the first to get on board, that rich church in Corinth. And all of a sudden we get there, and you don't have your gathering together. And it's connected to their carnality. And evidence of carnality was they were distracted from providing for the needs of others. And then a couple of verses in chapter number 16, and I'll be finished. And another evidence of carnality. And there are just seven I'm bringing out. Again, all of these to cause us to sit up, pay attention, and to avoid, do everything we can to avoid carnality. Verse number 10, now if Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear. Remember, Timothy was his young protege, Paul's young protege, and Timothy had an issue with fear. 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Timothy had an issue with fear. We maybe would say that was his besetting sin. See that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Remember in the book of Philippians, Paul would say that he had no man like-minded to Timothy. But as a son with a father, Timothy had labored with him in the gospel. Even with this issue of fear. Verse number 11. Let no man therefore... What's the word? Despise him. But conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me for I look for him with the brethren. Can I tell you... And this is just very simple and very practical. But the Lord really worked my heart about it as I meditated on this chapter, this passage, this message. And that is this. I believe it's an evidence of carnality when the mature saints in a church disdain the pupils in their midst. Disdain the next generation. Disdain the younger people. Young Timothy, as Paul's protege, as his representative, was being sent as a delegate by Paul to help address some of these issues in the church at Corinth and bring some messages to them and help them. And Paul says, listen, don't despise him. Don't discount him. Don't discount him for his youth. And it's interesting that Paul would have to give Timothy that instruction in the pastorals as well. Let no man despise thy youth, but be an example. I'm challenged often, even as I get older, by how God loves to use younger people, pupils. And we've tried to generate an atmosphere, a culture here at Crossroads that engages young people. And I'm telling you, as I'm looking back on the past 13 years, I'm looking and I'm saying, I'm just being transparent with you. Man, I wish wish I'd have done that better. But I will tell you this. God has blessed our, feeble though it may be, He's blessed our efforts at investing in the next generation. And we have a wonderful mix of young people and old people, zeal and wisdom, and then the middle-agers to kind of hold the balance. But when a church starts despising the younger generation, the pupils, and say, well, we've never done it that way before. Yeah, you young whippersnapper, you. I'm a grandpa. I can say that a little bit now. I think about a lady named Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Rowe of Roe v. v. Wade. 
Do you know who it was that was instrumental in bringing her to Christ? A little girl. A little girl. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. The power of youth. So, I conclude with this. Carnal is not a description any of us want placed on us, right? That's kind of like somebody saying, you're a Pharisee. You're carnal. So we avoid carnality. We want to. What does Paul say in verse number 13? Watch ye. Be cautious. Be aware. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. He's not saying quit, but it's the idea of show yourself to be a man. Be strong. Let all your things, verse 14, be done with what? Charity. It's amazing to me how many times Paul mentions love or charity in these last few verses. Verse number 15, it's as if to say, hey, here's some examples of folks who've avoided carnality. Love each other. Stand fast. Be on the alert. Show yourself a man. Be strong. Verse number 15, I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have, what's the word? You want to avoid carnality? Addict yourselves to the ministry of the saints. Get dirty for other people. That's the word diakonia there, diakonos. Go through the dust. Get dirty for other people. Addict yourself. Attach yourself to the ministry of the saints. Verse number 16, that ye submit yourselves. That'll help avoid carnality. That ye submit yourselves. Because our world doesn't like to talk about submission. Submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. The word labor is the idea of laboring to the point of exhaustion. I'm glad at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus for that while that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied, giving, providing for others. For they have refreshed. They've been a breath of fresh air to my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. Verse number 22, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Let him be accursed. Loving the Lord Jesus Christ to help us avoid carnality. Verse number 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Living in the reality of the grace of God that everything I have is because of grace. Verse number 24, my love be with you all in Jesus Christ. Love, 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 grace. Addict yourself, attach yourself to the ministry of the saints. Refresh, be mature, grow up. I'm going to just quit right there. I got one other thing I was going to say, but let me just stop right there. Avoid carnality. Identify these evidences of carnality and then avoid them. Let's pray. Father, help us as we conclude this service tonight. I've gone a little longer than I anticipated, but Lord, the burden of my heart, I wanted to finish this thought this evening. I thank you for this church. I thank you for its wonderful testimony for 13 years to this point. And God, I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around Crossroads Baptist Church. That you would cause, stimulate, motivate the members of this church to be on high alert to these evidences of carnality. And to determine we're not going to let them get a foothold here. Disputing over preferences and dividing over personalities and being... deceived by pride and being distracted from our privilege and responsibility of providing for the needs of others and so on. Lord, help us to be on high alert 
Help us to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do so, there will be positive strength in the right direction away from the grip of carnality. Help us to pursue being led by the Spirit of God. And I ask all of these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.